In this episode of Unbelievably True Crimes, we look at a man struggling to find a purpose for his life. The man eventually gets laid off from his job at a factory when he then stumbles into a position as an orderly at a hospital. It's around this time when something inside him snaps and he begins his downward spiral into madness. This is Unbelievably True Crimes, Episode 7. Attention, ladies and gentlemen of the court. It's time for another case of unbelievably true crimes. Keep in mind that the case details you're about to hear may be completely factual, but it could also be completely fabricated. As your presiding judge, may I remind you that it's your duty to decide for yourself what's real versus what's not up until the very end. Now, let's begin. Welcome back to Unbelievably True Crimes. I'm Ty. <laughs> Hello, I am Adri. And this is episode seven. Um, Good morning. Yep, we're recording a morning episode, so Cheers. I'm taking advantage of my deep radio host voice. <laughs> um, so let's get started. Good morning. Welcome to court. Get it? <laughs> anyway. Unbelievably True Crimes is a crime podcast in which we discuss crime cases of the past. This podcast is not always true crime, however, because sometimes the crimes that you hear every episode are not true at all. Sometimes the cases are completely made up by me. Like you, Adrian will not have any idea whether or not the crime we discuss is true or false. She's hearing these crimes in real time. She's hearing it all for the very first time every single episode. And at the end of each episode, you and Adrian will have to consider all the information you learned throughout the episode to decide whether or not the crime was true or false. Unbelievably True Crimes aims to bring you interesting and jaw-dropping stories every Monday. And it's my promise to you that regardless of whether or not the crime is true or false, I will have you wanting more and more and more. Hang tight until the end of this episode to discover whether or not the crime you heard was true or false. And don't look it up as we go along. Don't look up names, locations, etc., etc., anything that would help you decide if it's true or not, because that just spoils all the fun. You'll have a much more enjoyable experience if you just sit back wherever you are and take every piece of information as it's presented to you. Now, without further ado, let us begin. This episode, we are focusing on two different states where our crimes occurred, Kentucky and Ohio. And we are focusing on a man called Donald Harvey. Donald Harvey was a self-proclaimed Old Plymouth boy. What's an Old Plymouth boy? No idea. I, I honestly don't know. <laughs> he just called himself that, but as we progress through the story, you realize he really doesn't have that sane of a mind, so maybe... Oh, okay. Maybe that plays a role in his ability to come up with uh, nicknames <laughs> for himself. But yeah, old Plymouth boy, no idea. All right. Donald Harvey was born in Butler County, Ohio, which is near Cincinnati. He was born on April 15th, 1952. Shortly after his birth, according to Murderpedia.com, the family relocated to Boonville, Kentucky, which is on the eastern slopes of the Appalachian Mountains. His childhood was actually very good, and on August 14, 1987, in an interview with the Cincinnati Post reporter Nadine Luthan, Harvey's mother, Goldie 
Harvey recalled her son was brought up in a very loving environment. Now, the principal of the elementary school that Donald attended backed up Goldie's words with some words of her own. She states, and why don't you go ahead and read this for me, this quote. Okay. Donnie was a very special child to me. He was always clean and well-dressed with his hair trimmed. He was a very happy child, very sociable, and well-liked by the other children. He was a handsome boy with big brown eyes and dark curly hair. He always had a big smile for me. There was never any indication of any abnormality. Now on this flip side of these statements, both made by Goldie and the principal, some of Donald's classmates had different things to say. Some described him as a loner and a teacher's pet. They stated that he rarely participated in extracurricular activities, opting instead to read books and dream about the future. Following his graduation from Sturgeon Elementary School, Harry entered Boonville High School in 1968. He earned mostly A's and B's in most classes, and then with reportedly no effort at all, he earned those grades. Some state that he became bored with the daily routine and eventually dropped out of high school. Some stated that he dropped out because he never really had any goals that he had set for himself. And as a result of his dropping out, Donald became perplexed as to how to handle his newfound freedom. And it was at this time when Donald decided to relocate to Cincinnati, Ohio. And upon arriving there, he secured a job as a factory worker. This is our second factory worker that we've had on the show, isn't it? I believe it is. So in 1970, work began to slow at the factory and Donald Harvey was eventually laid off. His mother called him a few days after being laid off and asked him to travel to Kentucky and visit his ailing grandfather who had recently been placed in a hospital there. Donald agreed and within the next few days, he left for Marymount Hospital in London, Kentucky. Although nobody could ever know this at the time, this would later prove to be the beginning of a very, very long journey into madness for Donald Harvey. Oh boy, here we go. While in Kentucky, Donald spent lots of his time at this hospital where his grandfather was a patient, Marymount Hospital. The hospital was run by nuns, and the staff there soon come to enjoy Donald's presence. During one particular conversation, one of the nuns asked Donald Harvey if he would be interested in working for the hospital as an orderly. At this time, Donald was still unemployed after being laid off from the factory. Donald also didn't want to have to work for another factory, so he gladly accepted the offer. After accepting the offer, Donald started work the very next day. What is that? What's an orderly? It's just like a non-certified <clears throat> person who helps out at the hospital doing okay. simple tasks. Gotcha. Although Donald was not a trained medical professional, his job duties required him to spend hours alone with the patients of Marymount Hospital. Some of his other duties included changing the bedpans, inserting catheters, and handing out medications to patients. I feel like you should be trained to insert a catheter. Yeah, I, I would uh, have to agree with that because the thought of a catheter being inserted even by a trained professional sounds extremely unpleasant. So yeah. the thought of an untrained person doing it adds even more fear into uh, the nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> Yikes. Harvey's first few weeks were pretty uneventful. But somewhere along the way, something within Donald Harvey snapped. To this very day, criminal psychologists are still unsure of what exactly happened within Donald's mind that drove him into such madness. 
Whether he was unable to cope with the pain and suffering that he witnessed around him every day as an orderly, or whether he simply enjoyed watching his victims suffer, no one will ever know for sure. And I mean, to go from a factory to a hospital ward was quite a change for Donald, I'm sure. Took a great deal of adjustment. Mm -hmm. Every single shift, Donald witnessed suffering and death. And very soon he came to realize that he lacked a lot of control, which is something that he sought after. It was at this time when he decided that he had to intervene. He decided to find his own way of having control in this very uncontrollable environment. He decided that he would be the one to decide when people could die. It was at this time when he convinced himself that he was an angel. The angel of death. Well, the angel of death is actually already taken from the lady in episode three, if we remember. Well, Donald also wants that nickname. So I'm the angel. So he, you know, he gets it too. Quite the popular nickname. Yeah, apparently among psychopaths. Mm -hmm. Call me the angel. The angel of death. I'm the angel of death, correction. There can only be one. (laughs) One night during an evening shift, just months after starting at the hospital, Donald Harvey committed to his very first murder. Years later, in an interview with the Cincinnati Post, Donald described the murder to a reporter called Dan Horn, and he stated the following. I walked into a private room to check on a stroke victim, and the patient had rubbed feces on his face. The next thing I knew, I'd smothered him. It was like it was the last straw. I just lost it. I went in to help the man, and he wants to rub that in my face. Following the smothering and the murder, Donald Harvey cleaned up the patient and hopped into the shower before calling the nurses, so as to remove any evidence that he had been involved in a murder. Wow, so no one suspected anything? In Donald's own words, quote, no one ever questioned it, end quote. Of course. He was starting to realize how much power that he now possessed, how much control he now had, and he started to feel more powerful and more confident. Three weeks after committing his first murder, Donald killed again after disconnecting an oxygen tank that an elderly woman had at her bedside. This oxygen tank had been keeping her alive. He decided that he had done a very good thing by ending this woman's suffering. He had gotten away with murder again, and with this, his confidence swelled even more. Finally, he had found a purpose in his life. As time went on, Donald Harvey's methods of murder varied and changed. He used various items such as plastic bags, morphine, and a variety of other drugs. Over the course of his first year employed at Marymount Hospital, Donald Harvey had successfully murdered more than a dozen people. Over a dozen? Over a dozen. Wow. That's terrible, and he just keeps getting away with it? Yep, no one suspected anything. So, one of Donald Harvey's murders was especially unforgettable and gruesome. Though the hospital staff never suspected Donald of being a murderer, some of the patients began growing suspicious. One had outright accused Donald of trying to kill him. And when Donald came to his room, the two then had a heated argument over the accusation. The argument soon became violent to the point where a patient grabbed a metal bedpan and knocked Donald out with it. 
The patient did that? Yeah, the patient knocked Donald out with a metal bedpan. Well, good. He deserves it. I don't disagree. So when Donald regains consciousness, he sets out for his revenge attack on the patient. He awaited the nightfall when he then snuck into the dark room where the patient was asleep. Upon entering the room, he took a dirty coat hanger and inserted it into the patient's catheter and then removed it abruptly, causing a puncture. He then left the room. As a result of this puncture, an infection set in and the man died a few days later. Oh my god, that is so brutal. Yeah, makes me hurt oh, thinking about that. Cringe. Donald was starting to become increasingly reckless in his personal life at this time. On March 31st, 1971, for example, he broke into a house. He was so drunk that he had mistakenly walked into a different house that was not his own home. He was then arrested for burglary. While being questioned by the police, Donald began bragging to the police about the murders that he had committed over the course of the last year as an orderly at Marymount Hospital. Consequently, the officers eventually looked into these claims made by Donald, but in the end were unable to find any evidence to back the claims. A few weeks later, Donald went to trial for the burglary charge and eventually pleaded guilty to a lesser charge of petty theft. Donald soon decided that he wanted to do something else with his life, so he decided to enlist in the United States Air Force. His time in the military was uneventful, and less than a year later, he received a general discharge and returned home. Why only just a year? Did he get caught doing something sketchy? Some theories are that his superior officers had read the police report file from his arrest and read about his bragging of the murdering of several people during the interview with the police. Some also believe that the Air Force relieved him of his duties after coming to the conclusion that he could be a danger and a liability to have around. After being discharged from the military, Donald once again found himself without a purpose in life. In July of 1972, Donald checked himself into a Veterans Administration Medical Center because he was experiencing bouts of serious depression. He spent a month in this hospital and then checked himself out. And a few weeks later, checked himself back into the same hospital for the same reason. While in the hospital for the second time, he tried to commit suicide, but failed. It was at this point when the doctors in the facility suggested a course of electroshock treatment. He was subjected to this treatment 21 times. What is that electroshock therapy? Essentially, I mean, back then they believed that um, it would cure you of any mental illness. It, essentially, they'd just hook this thing up to your the sides of your head and it would electrocute your brain. Just a jumpstart? <laughs> I guess. Yikes. After being released from the hospital, Donald Harvey spent the next few months trying to find a way to get his life together before eventually finding work as a part-time nurse's assistant at Cardinal Hill Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. In June of 1973, he got a second job at Lexington's Good Samaritan Hospital. Donald kept both of these jobs until August of 1974, when he then took a job as a telephone operator. A couple months after that, he secured another job as a clerical personnel at St. Luke's Hospital in Fort Thomas, Kentucky. Why did he bounce around so much? Well, according to Donald's later confessions, he stated that he was having a very hard time controlling his urges to kill. He stated that he didn't have complete access to the patients like he had when he was working at Marymount Hospital. And because of this, the opportunities to kill 
were not as great, and he saw it as more of a risk to try and carry out the behaviors he exhibited at Marymount Hospital. It was at this point when he moved back to Cincinnati, Ohio, in hopes of finding a better and more opportunistic environment to quench his thirst of murder. In September of 1975, Donald got a job working night shift at the Cincinnati VA Medical Hospital. He was pretty much just assigned to whatever ward needed help at the time, and his job duties varied depending on the role that he was assigned. His roles varied between a nursing assistant, a housekeeping aide, a cardiac catheterization technician, and an autopsy assistant. Harvey soon found his niche working the night shift, because it was the night shift that there was little to no supervision, and this led him to begin killing again. Over the course of the next 10 years, Donald Harvey killed regularly. He murdered an estimated 15 people. The majority of Donald's victims during this time were known because of diaries that were later discovered at Donald's home. He would notate the details of each patient and the ways in which he had murdered them. So earlier you said he killed over a dozen in a year, and now we're about 15, so that could be over 30 victims. Exactly. He was absolutely a psycho. I mean, he literally was a serial killer. Gosh. So with each victim, Donald would refine these methods of his killings. Some of the methods including putting a wet towel over the patient's mouth and nose, sprinkling rat poison into patient's desserts, adding arsenic and cyanide to orange juice, injecting cyanide into the intravenous tube, and injecting cyanide into patient's buttocks. After each crime, he would read medical journals for underlying ways to conceal his crimes. Over the course of his time working at the VA hospital, he had stolen around 30 pounds of liquid cyanide, where he would then store it at his home. 30 pounds? Good lord, how did he get away with that? Well, he'd just steal little by little throughout every shift. In the early 1980s, Donald Harvey met a man while he was working at the hospital. This man was called Carl Howler. Eventually, they moved in together. Almost as soon as Carl moved in with Donald, Donald would become suspicious of Carl. He would often worry that Carl was cheating on him with other men, and it was at this point when Donald began poisoning Carl with arsenic. This resulted in Carl having to stay home from work due to his sickness, and if Carl was home, he was unable to be around other men. Donald felt unstoppable at this point. One time he had an argument with a female neighbor and actually went as far as lacing one of her beverages with a hepatitis serum, which nearly killed her. Wow. Another neighbor, Helen Mitzger, was not so lucky, however. Donald had put arsenic in a pie and delivered it to her, where she died less than a week later. I mostly can't believe he still hasn't been caught considering all of these victims. Yeah, I, I agree. In April of 1983, Donald had an argument with Carl Howler's parents when he began poisoning their food with arsenic. On May 1st, 1983, Carl's father, Harry, suffered a stroke and was admitted into Providence Hospital. Shortly after being admitted into the hospital, Donald visited Henry and slipped arsenic into Henry's pudding, which Henry then consumed. He died later that night. His own father? It's Carl's father. Yeah. Oh, Carl's father. Okay, right. Gosh. Donald continued poisoning Carl's mother, Margaret, over the course of the next year, but remained unsuccessful in his attempts to kill her. In January of 1984, Carl Howler 
ended the relationship with Donald Harvey and told him to move out. For the next two years, Donald attempted to kill his ex-boyfriend with arsenic, but was never able to successfully do so. Carl had ended up in the hospital at one point, but that was the closest that Donald got to his ultimate goal. On July 18, 1985, security guards noticed Donald acting suspiciously as he left the hospital. They decided to search a gym bag that Donald was carrying on the way to his vehicle. Inside of this bag, the guards located a 38 caliber pistol, hypodermic needles, surgical scissors and gloves, a spoon with cocaine residue on it, various medical textbooks, two cult books, and a biography on serial killer Charles Sobrage. And then now he's caught, right? Well, if by caught you mean fined $50 for carrying a firearm on federal property and then given the opportunity to quietly resign or get fired from the hospital, then yes, he was caught. So no one questioned all that stolen stuff? No, no investigation was ever opened, nor was the incident noted in any kind of personnel file for Donald Harvey. Wow. Seven months later, Donald was hired at another hospital. This time, he was hired as a part-time nurse's aide at Cincinnati's Drake Memorial Hospital. Donald eventually earned a full-time position at the hospital through much hard work, where he then settled back into his old murderous ways. Over the course of the next 13 months, Harvey murdered another 23 patients. Oh my gosh, how is this guy still going undiscovered? He killed these patients in different ways. Some of them were disconnecting life support machines, injecting air into veins, suffocation, and injections of arsenic, cyanide, and petroleum-based cleaners. In April of 1987, Donald Harvey had a patient by the name of John Powell, who had been comatose for several months, but had started to recover quite significantly, until he unexpectedly died. Because of the unexpected death, an autopsy was ordered by the coroner. And during the autopsy, an assistant coroner noticed a faint smell of almonds. Almonds? I don't understand. Nor did I, until I learned that almonds is apparently the telltale sign of cyanide. It was at this point when murder was suspected and an investigation was opened. Ooh, yay. John Powell's family was interviewed at length, but no motive was ever found. It was at this point when police shifted their focus to hospital staff, specifically hospital staff who had been assigned to care for John Powell. The list was reportedly short. It wasn't until the police learned Donald Harvey's nickname in the hospital was the Angel of Death, when they then shifted their entire murder investigation on Donald. Wait, the, the, the staff called him the Angel of Death? Yeah. Why was that? Because he always seemed to be around when someone died at the hospital. It's, it's what it says on his name tag. Angel. <laughs> Donald Harvey, Angel of Death. <laughs> Okay, so they called him the Angel of Death because they realized he was always around someone who died, but they never thought that was strange or anything. They just all fun and games. Are you serious? Yeah, crazy, right? It's just, uh, it's almost unbelievable. <laughs> Good one. So in April of 1987, police secure a search warrant for Donald Harvey's apartment. And during the execution of said search warrant, police seize a mountain of evidence against Donald Harvey. Among the items were jars of cyanide and arsenic, books on occult and poisons, and a diary containing detailed accounts of Donald's murders during his times in various hospitals in the area. Well, that'll do it. 
At this point, Donald Harvey's spree finally ends when he's arrested for one count of aggravated murder. He was held under a $200,000 bond. Police began looking at various other mysterious and unexpected murders within the hospital after realizing the amount of evidence that they had against Donald. Donald also realized that his case wasn't looking so great for him, so it's at this point when he decided to try and make a plea bargain to avoid the death penalty in Ohio. On August 11th, 1987, 35-year-old Donald Harvey sat down with the police and confessed to committing 33 murders over the past 17 years. He only confessed to 33 of them? Initially, yes, only 33, but as the next few days unfolded and the investigators continued interrogating him, that number grew to 70. Investigators were skeptical about this number and decided to have his mental state evaluated before they took his statements as a fact. After several psychiatric tests performed by numerous experts, a spokesman for the Cincinnati Prosecutor's Office explained the dilemma to the Cincinnati Post. I want you to read this quote. This man is sane, competent, and is a compulsive killer. He builds up tension in his body, and then he kills people. Donald Harvey entered the courtroom on August 18, 1987, and pled guilty to 24 counts of aggravated murder, four counts of attempted murder, and one count of felonious assault. Just four days later, a guilty plea earned him a total of four consecutive 20 years to life sentences. In addition to his life terms, Donald Harvey was fined $270,000. Other states then began investigating crimes that Donald may have committed in their states, in their hospitals. On September 7, 1987, Donald was indicted on charges from his days working in Kentucky. He was sentenced in Kentucky to three life sentences. While in prison, he was being interviewed by a reporter with the Columbus Dispatch. The reporter asked him, why did you kill? His response was, quote, Well, people controlled me for 18 years, and then I controlled my own destiny. I controlled other people's lives. I had the power to control. After I didn't get caught for the first 15 murders, I thought it was my right to kill. I appointed myself judge, prosecutor, and jury. So I played God. On July 23, 2001, the Associated Press printed an article listing the worst serial killers in history in the United States. Donald Harvey was rated number one. John Wayne Gacy was number two. Donald died in prison in March 2017. Ooh, that was such a good one. He, uh, he's well above... The chicken number three. Yeah, okay. So he can be the angel of death. I yep. will give it to him. He can have that nickname. So what do you think about that one? Oh, man. Another psychopath. I love it. Any questions I can answer or anything like that? So we don't know for sure how many total murders um, he had? Around 80. 80 in total. No one will ever know for sure. No. He, he didn't detail every single murder in that diary. Just some of them. But it's estimated between... What was it? It was like 70 and 90. Mm. No, that's all the questions I had. Um, are you ready to know what I think? You want to take a... At whether it's true or false? A stabby? <laughs> stabby. Um, yes. I am going to go with true. 
Though I figured it up yesterday. You were two and four. Was I? Two. Oh, good. Okay. Two correct, four wrong. Well, something. So let's see. Okay. For the record of three and four, here we go. It is true. <gasps> yes! So you're three and four now. Congrats. You're moving on up in the world. Look at this, guys. I'm growing. You're almost at 50%. <laughs> so yeah, Donald Harvey is a real guy. Killed tons of people while working in a professional environment. <sighs> Pretty insane. Yeah, isn't that just like disturbing? The thought that there are... Yes. Doctors, yes. like the place where you go to take your... Well, he wasn't even a doctor. Like he he was just someone who walked around, did oh, yeah, right. random stuff. So... Did we know... I, I don't I... know that there are still orderlies around. Oh, that's good. People who can just casually like sneak into work. But there's people that come and go from hospital rooms all the time that are capable of doing such things if they wanted to. Yeah. I mean, I don't doubt if somebody wants to do some... If somebody wants to murder somewhere, they can find a way. Right. Guess what, guys? I got one. Yes. Everybody, everybody raise their glasses to Adri for this episode. Clink. Yes, you're doing, you <laughs> did well this one. With that, thank you for listening to episode seven of Unbelievably True Crimes. We truly appreciate your support and listenership, and we hope we continue to grow in our ability to produce these episodes for you. Please review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It's very helpful, and it drives us up the iTunes charts. The more reviews we have, gets our show out to more people. And it does take a, a lot of time to research and sometimes even make these crimes up, and it, it would mean a lot to me if you just took three minutes or less out of your time to give us five stars. You can just rate us and click submit, or if you're feeling extra generous, you can write a review. Again, Apple Podcasts is the purple icon on your iPhone. Or go to iTunes desktop, just search Unbelievably True Crimes, click the five stars, or write a review and click submit. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes to receive regular updates. If you've got any suggestions or feedback or case suggestions, send us an Instagram message or an email to UnbelievablyTrueCrimes at gmail.com. Also, if you're a writer and you want to make up a crime and have it debuted on this uh, show... If I can have a week off where you write something in and I can just read your your case, I would love that because then that means more time to myself. And me, me time. For me time. Yes, <laughs> us time. Tune in every Monday for more incredible case studies with us. This has been Unbelievably True Crimes. I'm Ty. And I'm Adri. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. And in the meantime... Trust nobody. Thank you for listening to another case of Unbelievably True Crimes with Ty and Adri. We appreciate your attentiveness and good judgment throughout the hearing. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Also, follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Unbelievably True Crimes. Until next time, court is adjourned. Thank you and good night.